We know that from time to time, people lose hope. They lose that drive that says, I can live another day. But I want to remind you that that's a gift that was given by the creator. Nobody can take that away from you. Maybe you're not aware of it. Maybe you don't know how to feed it. But I'm telling you, the creator gave you the gift of life, and there's always hope for tomorrow. That's Dr. Carol Hopkins. Executive Director of the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, a leading advocate for First Nations culturally-based mental health services. She's our guest today on the Akamema Podcast. Tanse, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamema Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamema is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, Let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And on this Bell Let's Talk Day, as part of our effort to help support mental health all across Canada, we're discussing the issue of mental health and First Nations. And our guest is a leading expert in this area. Dr. Carol Hopkins is the Executive Director of the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation and is a proud member of the Lenape First Nation in southwestern Ontario. She has spent more than 20 years working in the field of First Nations addictions and mental health with a special focus on the use of traditional knowledge and healing. She is a First Nations representative to the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs and for her efforts in 2018, she was appointed Officer of the Order of Canada. Dr. Carol Hopkins, welcome to our Akamema podcast. We want to bonjour, National Chief. No jem indigenous, gaye, mayinga, and dodem, lane lanape, kwe, and down, mede wana kwe, and down, lanape, king, and donjaba. Chimmy Gwitch for the invitation to this podcast and the opportunity to talk about indigenous knowledge as evidence uh, to support mental wellness mm-hmm. and addressing uh, substance use issues. Okay. So, Dr. Hopkins, first question I want to get into with you is tell us about your organization and uh, what sparked your interest working in this field. Thunderbird Partnership Foundation is well known. It was known as the National Native Addictions Partnership Foundation and was established in 2000 to answer uh, the 1998 review and recommendations from Uh, the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program Review. So that national program goes through review about every 10 years. Mm -hmm. And one of the recommendations was to establish a national organization to support the workforce in First Nations communities in addressing substance use. We changed our name and or created the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation in 2015 as we took on a broader role in mental wellness. So our name previously was focused only on addictions. Mm -hmm. And then we supported the development of the First Nations Mental Wellness Continuum Framework that was launched in 2015 on Bell Let's Talk Day um, by the National Chief at that time. And so we changed our name to a name that represents and could be Um, identifiable to First Nations people across the country. So we know the Thunderbird is the Mm -hmm. spirit eagle and has the greatest of vision. And so in addressing substance use as well as mental wellness, uh, we wanted to have an appropriate name. So that's the name we carry 
It was gifted to us uh, through ceremony and ceremonial protocol. Mm. And our work focuses on championing the translation of Indigenous knowledge into usable practice. And we do that in research, in training and education, through our work in policy mm-hmm. and partnerships, advocacy, and then through our communications uh, tools and and uh, and reach to First Nations communities. So you expanded the whole NADAP review, the National NADAP review. You've transformed it and, and made the scope larger, and yes. you're incorporating First Nations traditional knowledge into as. Uh, so, can you expand more on that in terms of? Uh, yeah. The use of First Nations knowledge and healing methods as it applies to mental health. And what makes them so successful in your view? Yes. So that's a big question. And mm-hmm. so the use of Indigenous knowledge is so important. Um, in conversations that we've had with Indigenous knowledge keepers across this country, we approach those who have a strong foundation in their original language, mm-hmm. have a connection to their ceremonial knowledge, to their community knowledge that has been passed on from generation to generation. And so we know that First Nations culture has a strong foundation of oral tradition passed on from generation to generation. Often that's not understood by Western society because mm-hmm. it's thought, well, you know, who can have that memory and who can translate it with a, without the objectivity? But in fact, our original teachings that have been given to us by the creator, we understand as sacred knowledge. Mm-hmm. And across this country, in all of the different language families and cultural groups, they have structures and processes to retain that original knowledge and to to ensure that it's transmitted across generations of people. Our job with that knowledge is to create access to it, Mm -hmm. to help us with every part of life. Otherwise, it's just knowledge. If we don't use the knowledge and make use of it, then we're not honoring what the creator gave to us as people. Mm-hmm. That's our strength. And so in supporting the wellness of First Nations, then we go back to under an understanding that every nation of First Nations people has a story of creation. That's their spirit law. Mm-hmm. And that law holds the evidence for what will help us to sustain life, to be well. And so in our conversations with elders and knowledge keepers, um, cultural practitioners, we have a discussion about what is it that you can give us that will help guide us in addressing substance use. So in 2011, Mm -hmm. we launched the Honoring Our Strengths, a renewed framework to address substance use issues amongst First Nations in Canada. And in that framework, elders gave us some key principles to guide. They said, If we continue to focus on one person at a time, which is a Western-based way of helping, then we're never going to get to healing at the community level. Mm -hmm. So they gave us some guiding principles. And one of those principles is being spirit-centered. So in many programs to address addictions, we don't talk about the spirit or that we have a spirit. And it's necessary to support that. So in treatment centers, for example, Translating that principle into practice, we know that across the country, treatment centers 
offer SWAT lodge ceremonies, smudging, pipes, the use of their own medicines, Mm -hmm. fasting ceremonies. They do lots to connect people to the land. And we wanted to also support the documentation of that, translating that practice into evidence so that we could create a vehicle for conversations between conventional evidence and culture-based evidence. And so we created this Native Wellness Assessment. It's a Class B psychological assessment, Mm -hmm. and treatment centers are using it. And in the context of COVID, I'm really proud of treatment centers, our First Nations treatment centers, to serve youth and adults, because they're showing that with their virtual service delivery, they are still able to help people connect to culture through teachings, through guiding them and what they can do on the land, on their own or with their family, teaching how to smudge, how to pray, connecting them to elders who can support them in counseling. And through these, what we call culturally based interventions, we have seen through the use of the Native Wellness Assessment that First Nations people, adults and youth, participating in virtual services through treatment centers are increasing their wellness anywhere from 4 to 16% through virtual services. And yeah, so we're, we, we're developing the evidence that tells a story about our strengths and using land-based services to support wellness, even in the context of virtual service delivery. Mm-hmm. I'm really proud of our treatment centers for developing that evidence and offering those services. So those, again, success stories that should be supported by all levels of government, no question. And, and I know uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's, it's all, been here for a year, you know, yeah. and so we, we can't, uh, it's not as easy to go to ceremonies anymore because you, you have to watch your social distancing. You can't hug That's or right. touch each other anymore, you know, the, the feasting ceremonies, you know, where you share meals yes. and so all these yes. things are challenged. So how, what can you Tell us about the impact that COVID-19, that this pandemic has had on First Nations people, even knowing that, for example, our mental health is sad in the sense that we have a youth suicide rate that's five to seven times the national average. And so this is uh, exacerbated by COVID-19. Can you share some thoughts on this going forward? Yes. COVID-19 is a public health crisis. And so are the suicides and the deaths by overdose, accidental poisoning from opioids, specifically fentanyl and contaminated Mm -hmm. drugs. That's had um, a devastating impact on First Nations. And we know across the country that it's uh, been seen uh, more devastating. We've seen more devastation in some regions than others. Um, And I think that story is prominent because it it tells us two things. One is that First Nations people are suffering in the pandemic, not only from COVID-19, but from the lack of access and available services to support them in their dependency to opioids or other drugs. And so across Canada, there are provincial processes in place to capture data, to tell them the story about how well they're doing in addressing dependency to drugs and the overdoses and the um, other issues of impact by different drugs, um, cocaine, methamphetamines, are other examples. 
for First Nations people in the pandemic, we know that from people accessing treatment services, the, the virtual treatment services, that 4% of First Nations have increased their use by, and most measures are how many times have you used in the last month or the last year. Mm-hmm. For First Nations people, when we ask the question, how many times they've used in the last month, we're seeing an increase of free, in the frequency of their use to 20 or more times in a month. So 4% have increased their alcohol use 20 or more times in a month. 6% have increased their use of opioids and methamphetamines um, to 20 or more times a month. So that tells us that more First Nations people are relying on substances like alcohol, opioids, and methamphetamines to help them get through their day. They have a dependency. And, And so then what are the solutions or the tools that they can reach to, to support their right to life. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really important national chief because first nations people who do not have access uh, to the supports that could save their life, such as suboxone is a life-saving measure. We know that there are first nations communities in Canada that do not have access to suboxone on a regular basis. And so that's contrary to our right to live, our right to life. So for our listeners, tell me about Suboxone. What is that? What is it used for? And it should be really accessible to everybody to help with, right. fill that in. Suboxone is a form of treatment. And so for First Nations who um, have decided that they can no longer live the way they're living because of their dependency on drugs, and they want to find a different solution, then Suboxone is the first line of treatment that many provincial governments have mandated as an answer to their addiction to opioids only. So Suboxone, it does not address methamphetamines, but it is specifically designed to support people in their recovery from opioids. And there are different forms of Suboxone. So there is the pill form that you take daily. Um, There are other uh, forms of Suboxone that you are only required once a month or every six months, making it more accessible for First Nations in remote and isolated communities or even in rural communities where they have to travel someplace to get access to a doctor or a nurse practitioner who can prescribe Suboxone. And naloxone is a medication that can be administered if somebody is looking like they are losing their breath of life, like they are overdosing, they're in trouble, Um, they're non-responsive, they start to turn blue, um, and you see that they're, they're not breathing. Then if you administered naloxone, it could help them to breathe again, and it could help them to save their life. Now, there's different types of naloxone. Um, Different amounts are needed depending on what the person is in trouble with or overdosing on. It's not always available in First Nations communities. Okay. So we said there's already an opioid crisis amongst First Nations across Canada, no question. There's already on most reserves, I hear from chiefs all the time, like this is an epidemic, you know. It is. And there's overdoses and overuse of 
access to whether it's crystal meth or fentanyls coming in. Yep. So that it's a, already an epidemic. So with COVID-19, you're saying there's more and more use now of not only alcohol, but opioids as well as a way to deal with the, the mental health stresses and everything else that our people were experiencing, you know, like right. everything from poverty, overcrowded housing, the abuse, exactly. intergenerational trauma from the residential schools, the Indian Act, exactly. all of that. So that's, yep. that's coming up. So this is kind of like my next oh. question. So what more needs to be done by First Nations governments, provincial governments, and federal governments to deal with this crisis and epidemic amongst our people? So there are a number of things. The first thing I'll say is that First Nations communities are not often in a place where there's a good relationship with the local health authority. So in order to provide Suboxone and Naloxone, Mm -hmm. communities need a physician or a nurse practitioner in order to get access to that medicine. There has to be a prescription for Suboxone. Mm You need a doctor to write that prescription or you need a nurse practitioner. Those professionals, health professionals, are not provided under our benefits or any structure of the First Nations Inuit Health Branch of Indigenous Services Canada. That is a responsibility of provincial and territorial governments the provincial and territorial government, as well as the health authorities with that reports to that provincial health government, they do not always have good relationships with First Nations. So they don't often provide services specific to the needs of First Nations populations. So we need to get clear on what's a mechanism that takes away the choice about whether a province or a territory will respond to suicides in First Mm -hmm. Nations communities or the impact of substances like opioids and methamphetamines that need the support of physicians and nurse practitioners. So so just to be clear, so our listeners have a good idea here, Dr. Hopkins, um, in a lot of cases, a lot of First Nations in Canada don't have access to a physician or nurse practitioner in order to get that prescription. So that's number one. And number right. two, so our listeners know, there's a program in Canada called the Non-Insured Health Benefits. You know, that's that, right. That the federal government administers. So when you have a status card, you yes. know, and, and everybody thinks that, oh, First Nations get free drugs, but yet it's still in Section 35 of Canada's Constitution. We have the Medicine Chest Clause in Treaty, that there's a treaty obligation in times of sickness and pestilence that a medicine chest will be kept yes. at the house of the Indian aid. So we have this, this spirit and intent and the treaty right to health care. But the federal government says, well, you may have a right, but we have a program. So they're not really fully recognizing the right. But here's a program called the Non-Insured Health Benefits Program. And so once you have a status card, you can get drugs that are on this thing called the, the National Drug Formulary, right? That's and so, right. And if things aren't on that drug formulary, you don't have access. That's so right. That's an issue. So I just want to make sure that our, our our listeners have an understanding of how do status Indians or First Nations people get access to the, the, the healthcare system. And in particular, as it relates to this issue we're talking about, because my initial question was, what more needs to be done from federal government, provincial territorial governments to make sure that our healthcare needs are met? And one of them is a better relationship with the provinces, because they've got to step in where there's a healthcare void and fix it. That's what I'm hearing you saying. Yes, through non-injured health benefits, 
we can have Suboxone paid for, Mm -hmm. but you need a nurse or a doctor to do that. And when you have a population in a community that says, or the community says, we've got 80% of our our population who are addicted to opioids, Mm -hmm. and there's no physician and there's no nurse practitioner in the community to help the community address the 80% dependency on opioids, Mm -hmm. Indigenous services does not have that responsibility. That's under the Canadian Health Act, the responsibility of territories and province. The acute care is Mm -hmm. their responsibility. And so we don't often see strong relationships. Now, First Nations Health Authority, they do have that all figured out. They have that strong relationship. That's in British Columbia. That's in British Columbia. The First Nations Health Authority of British Columbia have that partnership between the federal government, provincial government, and First Nations. Mm -hmm. So here's an example of what that partnership leverages. Mm -hmm. They've acknowledged that the opioid epidemic in British Columbia impacts First Nations people more than it does the general population of BC. So 16% more deaths in BC are First Nations when First Nations are only 3.3 of the population of BC. It affects First Nations more in the pandemic than it does the general population and specifically First Nations women. Well, what are they doing about it? Because of the partnership that they have, they have been investing in new treatment facilities, so new buildings or repairing the existing buildings, but they're also supporting programs, programs that honor and respect Indigenous knowledge. And so they have announced an investment into First Nations communities that is directly tied to land-based services. So recognizing Indigenous knowledge and culture and using that to support wellness and healing. Um, They've also announced um, other uh, funding for First Nations communities to be able to decide how they are going to meet their needs. So, for example, in harm reduction measures, the distribution of naloxone kits, building an understanding amongst First Nations on what are harm reduction measures. So, for example, instead of creating a bylaw, which is a First Nations community law that says, no alcohol is allowed in this community. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that does nothing to stop alcohol in the community. It does not promote healing and wellness. But if we say we're going to manage alcohol use in the community by creating ways to ensure that people who have a dependency to alcohol have access to a safe amount of alcohol, that's a harm reduction measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Providing naloxone is a life-saving measure. But if we have conversations based on compassion, our values as First Nations people, compassion, kindness, respecting the right to live, then we're going to have conversations with people who use drugs to Mm -hmm. understand their needs. So you mentioned the UN uh, Commission on Narcotic Drugs. There was a discussion um, among in the UN. um, They had a, a special assembly on the world drug problem in 2016. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that conversation, 
they announced a philosophy, a paradigm shift, a change in the way we think about addressing drugs. So the world has been involved in this war on drugs for many, many years. Uh, lots of investment in uh, the judicial system um, mm -hmm. to support investigations around crime. So in 2016, the member states said that hasn't, there's no evidence that philosophy has supported any change. But there is evidence from certain countries that shows if we change our philosophy, philosophy from a war on drugs to an understanding that every person has the right to life. Mm -hmm. And we support a health and social focus instead of a punitive focus, punishing people for their addiction to drugs and support their right to health, their right to life, their right to have the social infrastructure to support their wellness. So you mentioned poverty, lack of housing. Those are the social infrastructure that is needed. Mm -hmm. If we pursue that avenue of the right to life through health and social, we're going to see far better outcomes that not only for the people who use drugs, but for their family and community as well. Hmm. And so if we think about, you know, the person who is uh, who has a dependency on opioids and they get caught and they have their paraphernalia and they have their drugs in their pocket. Maybe they're involved in um, crimes that are about just being able to live and have food day to day. Mm -hmm. So life saving measures are achieved through crime. We send them to jail for that. We take away their drugs and we send them to jail. In COVID, people are not going to jail as often, but they're still going to jail. Mm -hmm. And if we took that same person and we did not take away their drugs, but we had a conversation about what are the avenues to support emergency housing for that individual that may be homeless, that First Nations person that maybe is living on the streets or in a park someplace? Where can they get emergency shelter that is uh, working in a harm reduction environment so they're not struggling with people to for abstinence or requiring them to quit when you take their drugs away from them? It could cause them to go into withdrawals that could be harmful, mm -hmm. um, but also could take their life. So emergency shelter, housing, and compassion and kindness. Um, so taking care of their basic needs first, National Chief, yeah. but also connecting them and reconnecting them to strategies that will support their wellness. So, for example, I went to visit a treatment center out east. And as part of their treatment program, they have people in their treatment center who are recovering by their choice from opioids <clears throat> and methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. As part of the program, we went out to their land-based camp. And they're sitting with an elder around a fire. They're learning to cook food, their traditional foods, in a traditional way. They're learning the teachings of respect for the fire and for that food. And they said to me that when you go out and we hear you do a lot of talking to lots of folks, can you remind them that we do all of this work to support our own healing? We don't want to live a life of crime. We want to live. But I have this dependency that I'm trying to get over. 
-hmm. And once I'm finished with this program, I have nowhere to go. I've lost everything. So how do I support myself? Where is my income? Where is the place that I live? Who's going to employ me? How am I going to get access to my kids or to my family? And so those are the answers. What does the housing look like? We already have a housing shortage for everyone in, in First Nations community. But for marginalized populations like people who are using drugs, we also have to be thinking about where is their place? Mm -hmm. We have to also balance that with what are the measures of accountability? Because it is true, they may have been involved in a life of crime and, and damaged relationships in the community. So how do we support their accountability, but also repairing those relationships? In some communities, so in Northern Ontario, they implemented, with the support of the local health authority, they've supported outreach workers. So people in our community who are going out and finding people who have this dependency on opioids, methamphetamines, cocaine, alcohol, having conversations with them, exploring their options, and getting them to connected to healthcare that can support them, as well as offering land-based services, connection to elders, being out on the land, and reconnecting to that knowledge of our ceremonies and our medicines that can also support them in their healing and wellness. So just to recap, it's like a, a, what I pick up from your conversation dialogue is that the whole paradigm shift that's needed from the punitive piece about war on drugs to more supporting the supporting the right to life, the supporting the right to health care, and to move away from the punitive viewpoints. That's a very powerful statement. Make sure that our listeners get that, that it's a paradigm shift. It's not a war on drugs, but you're supporting the right to health, the right to life. And it's the use of land-based programs from an Indigenous knowledge perspective and the use of, uh, our elders always say, get back to the land mm -hmm. and get back to the waters. They will heal you. Absolutely. Know, getting connected. And, and so the, that's very important. And then you also mentioned the two most important things, housing and jobs, jobs and housing. Those are the almost the number one and two issues on every reserve across Canada for people. Mm -hmm. There's not enough jobs and there's not enough housing, overcrowded housing. And then all, we still deal with the inter intergenerational trauma of residential schools and the Indian Act, no question. And so we still see that. So your, your point is, is hopeful that in dealing with the mental health issues and the crisis amongst First Nations people because of COVID-19, there's a strong theme about utilizing our First Nations ways of wellness and healing. And that's getting back to our ceremonies and our land and water. And again, the importance of uh, knowing who you are and where you come from, language and ceremonies. So very important message going forward, Dr. Hopkins. Thank you. I, I want to ask now, in terms mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, we talk about what more can be done from First Nations governments, um, federal government, you know, having access to the, the much needed uh, services and, and drugs. And as well, where there's gaps, the provinces and territorial governments have a role to come in because of the Canada Health Act. And they've transferred billions to the provinces and territorial governments to meet the needs of people. So that has to happen. But now for those listeners that are suffering from mental health issues um, out there, what message do you have for them? So for people who are living today with a dependency on any drug, whether it's opioids, methamphetamines, cannabis, alcohol, no matter what the drug is, my message to you is 
that our creator gave us the ability to pursue life. That's an inherent gift within every one of us as human beings. And we know that from time to time, people lose hope. They lose that drive that says, I can live another day. But I want to remind you that that's a gift that was given by the creator. Nobody can take that away from you. Maybe you're not aware of it. Maybe you don't know how to feed it. But I'm telling you, the creator gave you the gift of life, gave you the breath of life. And there's always hope for tomorrow. Maybe today you depend on alcohol and drugs to get through the day. And I pray that you find a way to get through the day. There's always a solution. The creator ensured that there was always an answer for every struggle that we would have in life along our life path. And elders talk about the tobacco road. They call it the tobacco road because we were given the medicine, sacred medicine of tobacco, to offer whenever we are faced with a challenge in life. Just a a pinch of tobacco can make all the difference for your life. And so you take that tobacco and you say, you know, I'm frustrated with life. I'm pissed off with the way my life is. I don't have anybody to comfort me. I don't have access to the drug that I need to actually make it through my day. I don't know what to do. I feel hopeless. But I'm putting this tobacco down. Help me find a way. That's all you have to say. Hmm. That's one strategy. And if you have a hard time believing that, that's okay. If you have a hard time believing that's going to make any difference, that's okay. That's where you're at right now. But also know that there are many, many people across this country that pray for you every day. So where you have a lack of belief in that answer, there are other people who do believe it and that lift up your voice. That's one thing. And then I encourage you to reach out to people. And I say this to First Nations people everywhere, that we have to have compassion for our relatives. People who are using drugs and maybe have harmed us in horrible, serious ways that we find hard to get over and comprehend how people could do those kinds of things. We have to remember they're people too. And we have to remember they are First Nations. And and that we have to have conversation, be willing to have compassion. For example, there were communities that I visited and they said, we light a fire. So right in the center of the community, they lit a fire for all of the people that were otherwise described as causing problems. They maybe were drug dealers. They were involved in violence and crime but they lit a fire for them and they went and took a drum and they sang outside their house to mm-hmm. let them know that they care for them. Their belief is that the creator gave us our ways and they can help anybody. That's the second thing. Have compassion for people who are suffering from alcohol and drugs, maybe in behaving in ways that cause harm to others and you want them to stop. So the Honoring Our Strength Renewal Framework that says spirit-centered principles means for everyone, not just for people who want help, but we have to remember everyone. And then 
find people who can connect you to services, whether they're elders or an addictions counselor or an outreach worker or a mental wellness team. There are people that care and they know where you can get counseling if you want it, if you just want someone to talk to, if you want access to naloxone to save your life or those of people that you hang out with every day, or you want to have the phone number. If you're using a loan, there is a, a national phone number that you can call and you can say, hey, I'm using drugs right now and I just want to call you, stay on the line with me to make sure that I don't overdose. And if you don't hear from me, I know you'll call hmm. emergency services to respond to me. So for First Nations people who are struggling with life, yeah. the creator gave us life, they gave you a breath of life, creator gave you the breath of life. And, and that's powerful because it's your spirit. Yep. That's and it. that can motivate you towards living life. And, and I think about our history, our ancestors who have faced pandemics. They've faced many things. And yet we continue to, to survive and continue to live with our culture and our identity, with our language, with our medicines with an understanding about how to live life in a good way. Hmm. And the evidence of that is that we still continue to live. Even though our languages and our ceremonies were outlawed, we still have them today. And many people are working with our languages and our ceremonies to revive the strength of those to help people in this time and into the future. So seven generations back, they thought about us, they prayed for us, the evidence is we still survive today with that knowledge, with our language, with our original gifts. For people who are struggling, we can rely on that. There's hope for us and there's hope for our tomorrow. Dr. Hawkins, that's a powerful message of hope for our listeners. And uh, I've always said to the people that are challenged or are, are having mental health issues and even that word suicide, you know, to choose life because I've always said it this way, that you're special, you are important, and you're loved. That's and right. The creator doesn't create junk. Mm. You know, it's, so that's something else we want all of our listeners to hear. And your teachings are very powerful and very hopeful. So Dr. Carol Hopkins, thank you so much for coming on our Aquaman podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Aquaman podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.